Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. First up today, I have an absolutely wonderful interview with Nicolas Cage from David Marchese in the New York Times magazine. So Marchese is a great celebrity interviewer and he always manages to get underneath the public-facing veneer of these celebrities to produce truly insightful, intimate interviews. He's wanted to interview Cage for a long time. He actually says he's his favorite actor. And in my opinion, this is one of the greatest interviews Marchese has ever done. It helps, of course, that Nicolas Cage is full of wacky stories and anecdotes, and he's often presented as a larger-than-life figure in the media thanks to his own zaniness. But Marchese manages to tease out the truth and the human feeling behind that persona. The result is a slightly bizarre reading experience. Details which might seem like tabloid hyperbole end up representing something intimate about Cage's personality and psyche. I'll give you an example. At one point, Cage describes a key moment in his life. That was the time when I almost went on, you might call it a grail quest. I started following mythology and I was finding properties that aligned with that. Marchese hangs on to that detail and doesn't let it drop. He asks Cage to explain, and he does, kind of. For me, it was all about, where was the grail? Was it here? Was it there? Is it at Glastonbury? Does it exist? At this point, it dawns on Marchese that Cage literally means that he went out searching for the Holy Grail. That's obviously quite nutty. But Marchese is gentle with that information, teasing more out of the actor and letting the story play out as though it were just a normal conversation. And there are so many other moments in here that made me think, wait, what? Like how Cage got acting tips from his pet cobras. Or when he refers to the very famous actors Charlie and Martin Sheen as my friend Charlie and his dad. This 23-minute piece is an absolute goldmine, and there's something weird and wonderful in almost every line. It's the best celebrity interview I've read in a while, and it's from this week's New York Times magazine. The link is in the show notes. My next pick today is a piece from Vera Bergengrun and W.J. Hennigan in Time magazine on how American officials have been actively ignoring the growing threat of domestic terrorism for years, how that's contributed to today's spike in white nationalist terrorists, and why that might finally be changing. It starts by pointing out a stark fact. Since 9-11, white supremacists and other far-right extremists have been responsible for almost three times as many attacks on US soil as Islamic terrorists. And the death tolls keep growing. The question is, why have America's leaders failed to significantly challenge this growing threat? The answer, gathered from over a dozen interviews with current and former law enforcement and national security officials, is a frustrating one. Warnings and attempts to refocus federal resources on the threat have gone ignored and thwarted. The FBI has apparently been warning the White House about this for years, to no avail. That means the momentum of these groups has increased and festered in dark corners of the internet. A former Department of Homeland Security official put the current threat in stark terms. Even if there was a crackdown right now, it's going to take years for the momentum of these groups to fade. I'm afraid we've reached a tipping point where we're in for this kind of violence for a long time. And there are other shocking details here that throw into relief how hard it is for law enforcement to track homegrown terrorists. Domestic terrorism isn't even a federal crime in the US, so prosecutors have to charge suspects under hate crime laws. 
and the president has pulled funding from organizations that go after neo-Nazis, white supremacists and the like. There are long passages in here on how politics has got in the way of countering white nationalist terrorism, and it's frustrating to read. But there's also a glimmer of hope on the horizon. A new momentum has arisen to push back against the threat and to give the departments in charge of that more teeth. Let's hope some of these measures will become law before too much more time has passed. For the full story, check out the 11-minute piece in last week's Time magazine. Last but not least today, I've got a piece from Dr. Andreas Mikkelsen in the Wall Street Journal about how fasting isn't just another diet fad and could actually help you live longer. So fasting is the practice of eating during only certain hours of the day, for instance, between nine in the morning and seven in the evening. It's arisen as one of the biggest weight loss trends in recent years, but this medical doctor has also used it to help his patients with an array of physical conditions. He says these include diabetes, high blood pressure, rheumatism and bowel diseases, as well as pain syndromes such as migraines and osteoarthritis. The process apparently works by reducing the amount of time your body spends each day processing food, thereby lengthening the amount of time devoted to cleansing and restoring the body's cells. That builds immunity, and studies have also shown that it can improve your mental well-being by stimulating nerve growth in the brain. Studies also show that even if you eat the same amount of food during the smaller time window, your body will store less fat around your organs and remain healthier for longer. And even more good news, it's not as hard to adopt this lifestyle as it might seem. Mickelson recommends spending at least 14 hours at a time fasting, i.e. not eating any food. And if you sleep between 11 and 7, you've already taken up 8 of those 14 hours. By not eating after 7pm to allow your body to properly digest food before you sleep, you've notched up another 4 hours, so then it's just the extra 2 between your 7 o'clock alarm and 9. For some, Mickelson says, the easiest way to do this would be to cut breakfast, making lunch your main meal of the day. If that seems to run against all the information you know about the most important meal of the day, Mickelson has more news for you. Scientific evidence for the glory of breakfast is scarce. And studies have shown that consuming most of your calories at lunch as opposed to at dinner can increase weight loss. But the benefits of time-restricted eating expand far beyond shedding a few kilos. There is even evidence to show it can help combat cancer. This four-minute piece is packed with evidence and information. Check out the full thing from last Saturday's Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. <laughs>